Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, April 27th, 2021. On today's episode of the show, we are going to be talking about the latest film and TV news and also diving into the mailbag to answer a couple of listener questions. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And writer Chris Evangelista. Hi. All right. Uh, let's talk about some big Marvel news that broke on Friday uh, that we have not had a chance to talk about yet because we spent yesterday's episode talking about the Oscars. So uh, Captain America 4 is in development, guys. Um, Malcolm Spellman, who is the head writer of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, is co-writing uh, the screenplay for this movie with um, Dalen Musan, who is also a staff writer on The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Uh, we assume that this is going to be following Anthony Mackie's character, Sam Wilson, who spoiler alert, became Captain America really at the end of Avengers Endgame and then sort of like officially took on the mantle, I guess, at the very end of uh, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So uh, we don't know really anything else about like what the story is going to entail, um, you know, which other characters might be in it, whether Chris uh, Chris Evans is going to make a cameo, anything like that. But um, Jacob, I know that you spoke with uh, Malcolm Spellman and I if I recall correctly, you were very impressed with the way that he spoke about that show and, and, you know, his plans for the series. Um, I know you and I have not 
completely caught up with all of Falcon and the Winter Soldier yet, so I can't speak to exactly how that show ended. Chris, I'm guessing you probably have not watched any of that show. Is that I correct? Haven't, yeah, I haven't watched any of it. Okay. Um, but Jacob, just knowing, um, you know, based on your conversations with Spellman and, and um, you know, ba- uh, what you've seen so far from Falcon and the Winter Soldier, what do you think about him being, you know, one of these sort of uh, authorial voices behind this new Captain America movie? Uh, I actually ha- I have caught up since we since we last spoke. Oh, about wow. This okay. So cool. yeah, um, I have very mixed feelings on Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I think its head and heart are in the right place, but it's also really messy in a lot of extreme ways. And this mess feels at times like Spellman's vision is not quite melding with the re- with the constraints of a Marvel project. And I don't know if this is going to be fixed for a film. Or if they can, you know, hash the conversations out better. But it genuinely feels like there's there was a a messiness to Falcon Red Soldier that um that resulted in a show that was full of interesting ideas, uh, but too many of which arrived a little underdone, a little half baked. But considering that Marvel TV, uh, the current iteration of Marvel Television, is you know learning to find its feet, uh, and already I think that you know WandaVision shows that they can't they can be better. I'm hoping that the more experienced film division can, you know, better implement Spellman's concepts. I, I think a lot about Thor Ragnarok, a film I genuinely love, and how Taika Waititi managed to make this massively entertaining film that's a that's about cultural genocide, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and how it's all there if you look for it, if, even though it's there between jokes and gags and action scenes. And I don't think Falcon Winter Soldier found that right rhythm, that, that right blend. But I think Spellman is smart. I think his heart's in the right place. I think his head's in the right place. I really want to be a project where all those ideas are more firmly in place around a a far more entertaining action movie as opposed to Fuckman Soldier, which often felt like it was two things side by side instead of one coherent idea. Yeah. And I think the idea of it being, you know, uh, condensed into, you know, presumably a two hour runtime uh, could actually help, you know, uh, bring in the parameters a little bit, bring in that focus and sort of, um, you know, let those, let that mix um, operate in a, in a better uh, blend, if that makes any sense, just like, you know, without all of the extraneous stuff that, that is needed to fill out six hours of content. um, I think this will be uh, an interesting look into what Spellman's real priorities are with this character and and uh, with this style of of superhero storytelling. So I'm I'm curious to see how this goes. Um, let's go to our next news item, which is a a remake of another round is in the works. Chris, tell us about that. Uh, yeah, Leonardo DiCaprio's production company has uh, scooped up the American remake rights to. Another round, which uh, stars Mads Mikkelsen and uh, was nominated, actually won Best Foreign Language uh, Oscar just recently. And um, while it's not 100% official yet, it sounds like Leonardo DiCaprio is also going to star in the Another Round remake. So there you have it. (laughs) Well, Chris, what do you think about this? Uh, You know, I'm uh, I'm not anti-remake in general, but it feels like we don't really need this just because the other movie, you can just watch it. Like it's, it's, it's like, it's on Hulu right now. You don't really need an American remake yet. Also because like that movie is, it's set, it's not set in America. And I feel like if you're going to make that movie in America, you're gonna have to change a lot of stuff. And I just don't think, I don't know. Part of me thinks this isn't even going to happen because it seems like every time 
uh, a movie wins best foreign language film, it's all, like the next day. It's like, we're remaking this in America. And then the remake never actually happens. So part of me wonders if this will even happen. Um, at the same time, I've been seeing a lot of people being like furious about this and like shitting on Leonardo DiCaprio. And I don't know when that happened. Like, when did we all decide we don't like Leonardo DiCaprio? I thought, <laughs> I thought we had all come around to agreeing that he's a very good actor and we all like him, but the backlash has been extreme. Like, don't get me wrong. Leonardo DiCaprio is no Mads Mikkelsen, but I could have swore we were like all on the same page here and on liking Leonardo DiCaprio. So uh, I, I don't know how I feel about that part, but. Yeah, that's tough. It's like, I, I think it's just because uh, Mads is so um, central to that movie, to another round, like, he, you know, his identity and and his particular skill set with his ballet, his background in ballet dancing is like such a, um, a key thing that's we've you know woven whatever that word word is uh throughout the the tapestry of that movie and like just to um you know plop it over in america and and plug dicaprio in it seems like that's not the way to do it and i'm I'm sure they're not going to try to do it exactly that way because as you mentioned like the drinking culture uh in the netherlands is, is way different than it is in the united states so it, it wouldn't even make sense to do a straight you know exact remake of this um Jacob, what do you think about this? You you saw another round, right? I think I'm the only person on staff who has not seen another round. Oh, okay. Um, Interesting. I, I do have something to say, though, and that is mm. when it comes to people being furious about this, this is just film Twitter, the smallest tempest in a teapot, you know, style overreaction. I I think the vast majority of people uh, love Leonardo DiCaprio. He's a bona fide movie star, a great actor. And by, by Thursday, people will decide to like him again on film Twitter because that's, that's how fast moods change. I think this is an ex- just an example of people being mads online <laughs> that entire thing was just a build up for that joke wasn't it 100 yeah <laughs> great all right uh so our next item here involves the john wick prequel tv series called the continental which has been uh, in various stages of development over the past i want to say three years at this point um it's supposed to come out on stars at some point but they don't even have a, a date yet for when they're going to start getting in, in you know in front of the cameras on this so it could be another year or two before this thing actually pops up um but we now know some details about this show and i wanted to lay them out for you guys and and get your take on this so uh, I think it's safe to say that we're all fans of the John Wick movies here, but the Continental is going to be a prequel that follows a younger version of Winston, who is the uh, hotel owner played by Ian McShane in the movies. And this is going to take place in the 1970s and is going to be set in New York City with the backdrop uh, that is essentially the same as the backdrop of the movie Joker, where the garbage strike uh, is going on and there are bags of trash piled up to the third floor of brownstones and the mafia is muscling in and trying to take over that business. And this uh, show is going to center on a younger version of the Winston character who basically like rolls in and, uh, and he, the, the quote here is uh, how it came to be that he and his team of Confederates found their way into this hotel, which we have met for the first time in the movie franchise 40 years later. Um, so that's the the sort of, basic pitch here and also the the plan is to do the first season of the show as three 90 minute events which to me reminds me of um like the bbc's approach to sherlock which is uh yeah sort of like the the british approach to television shorter bursts uh longer um episodes within a, a season um so that part of it sounds intriguing to me but what do you guys think about the idea of centering this thing on 
young Winston in 1970s New York City and not involving John Wick himself at all. Um, Chris, let's start with you. What do you, what do you make of this? Uh, I think it's a, it's a interesting idea. I was wondering, like, how are they going to do these shows, this show without Keanu Reeves? Because I had, you know, I sincerely doubted Keanu Reeves was going to do a TV show. So I do think this is a good way to get around that because, you know, if it were set in the present, Everyone would be like, where's John Wick? When's mm-hmm. John Wick going to show up? Where's John Wick? And now they don't have to do that because he's not going to be born yet or whatever. Or be a baby. Maybe John, the baby John Wick will show up at some point. <laughs> I, I mean, maybe, Chris, you know, I, I remember when uh, WandaVision was, was coming out, you were sort of like um, uh, distraught. I mean, that might be the wrong word, but just a little frustrated with the idea of like, uh, you know, the big show of the moment sort of like leaning so heavily on cameos. Like what, what's the next big thing that's going to happen and like shake things up and like, Oh my God, people are going to go crazy. So I, I kind of feel like this is a, a move that will make you uh, breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief because now that, that option has been taken off the table entirely. Yeah, that's a, that is a good point. Uh, Jacob, what do you think about this? I know you're a big, big John Wick fan. Yeah, this is smart. I think the John Wick universe, that entire world has, prove itself to be resilient people go to those movies for keanu and the action but they also go because the world is so interesting and you know pair it in that with that period setting with the, with the origins of a character who is mysterious and actually has a lot of unanswered questions that we could actually be fun to learn about i'm i'm all about this i i just don't know who you cast as young ian mcshane i mean i can't think of, a, of another actor alive that who has that similar energy and i would hmm. love to see who they get for that part yeah that's a that's a tough one. I would love it if listeners would send us an email and let us know who they think, you know, their, their fan casting choices. That would be really amusing to read because um, I'm, I'm having trouble coming up with somebody off the top of my head. Uh, all right, let's go to our last news item today. And that is a reunion between Martin Scorsese and Paul Schrader. Chris, uh, I assume you're very, very excited about this. So tell us what's going on with these guys. I am. I'm very excited about this. So Martin Scorsese and Paul Schrader uh, worked together on several films, uh, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, The Last Temptation of Christ, and Bringing Out the Dead. And now they're uh, they're reuniting for a three-year series, TV series, uh, that's going to explore the origins of Christianity. Uh, and I know that's not going to appeal to everyone, but this is like super cool to me. <laughs> um, you know, Scorsese and Schrader... Uh, Christianity and, and especially Catholicism are, are a big part of their work, especially Scorsese. You know, Catholic guilt is like built into every movie he's ever made. And the idea of, of going back in time and, and looking at the, you know, the historic, we're talking the historic origins here. This isn't going to be, you know, a, a full blown religious show. Uh, this, this is just really exciting. And, um, you know, they, they've sort of covered this material before with the Lamentation of Christ, but you know, they're, they're going, even further with this. Um, I do want to add that when the story broke, everyone was reporting that it was going to Netflix, but I actually got an email from someone representing uh, this who said it's actually not set up anywhere yet. So we don't know where it's going to air just yet, but uh, it's, it's on the way and uh, I'm very excited. Uh, okay, here's the point in the podcast where I admit that I have yet to see The Last Temptation of Christ. So uh, I don't really have any opinion on this. But Jacob, I assume you've seen that movie. What do you make of this? Yeah, it's probably my second favorite Scorsese movie. Uh, it is the best movie ever made about uh, religion or faith. It is a really remarkable piece of work. And one of the few, I guess, we so often pigeonhole Christian films to be, you know, these 
uh, incredibly cheesy, sometimes propagandistic uh, nightmares. Kirk Cameron, uh, etc. Yeah. Uh, but Martin Scorsese is a deeply religious man, and he in Stage Christ is a very is a Christian filmmaker making a Christian film in, in a way where he's asking questions and probing his faith, and it's a really fascinating, you know, examine re- retelling of familiar ideas. But I think this is so interesting. I will say that I read a book uh, by author uh, Reza Aslan a few years ago called Zealot about. The historic, what the historical record says about the origin of Christianity, about uh, Jesus of Nazareth, not the religious um, figure from books, but with, with the actual written records that, are, that still survive, say about him. And it was one of the most enlightening, fascinating, and moving books I've ever read. So I really hope that they don't need to adapt that book. But I think there's a story here, even for non-religious people, to really understand and appreciate you know, what this means and how it came to be. I want to add that uh, I read that book too. And Jacob, what you should read next is the book that Paul Verhoeven wrote, AKA Paul Verhoeven, the director of RoboCop wrote a book all about the historical Jesus. And it's very (laughs) good. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's all about, you know, the historical origins of Christianity and stuff like that. Cause Paul Verhoeven is uh, in addition to making very violent, very sexy movies is also uh, a religious scholar. So, Seek out the Paul Verhoeven Jesus book. I like this. Sounds like an Onion article, Chris. But I am going to seek this out. It's, it's really good. <laughs> I feel like I've seen a lot of, um, you know, like RoboCop as the as the Christ uh, allegory kind of. Um, yeah. I, I feel like that that is a, a thing that is out there. So the, the book uh, is yeah. called uh, Jesus of Nazareth by Paul Verhoeven. Okay. Uh, all right. Let's dive into the mailbag uh, before we leave and wrap things up today. So um, a couple of, uh, well, actually, just one Oscar related question that I've been saving for. Uh, for this occasion, right on the heels of the Oscars. So Belinda from Chicago writes in and she says, what movie was the worst choice for best picture? For me, I'm torn between uh, Green Book, What Were They Thinking? The Artist, really, it's a gimmick, and Slumdog Millionaire. I don't hold much love for Gladiator either. What are your choices? So uh, let's see. Um, Jacob, let's start with you. What uh, what, what are your picks here? Oh, man. Um, These are all choices that... I don't hate Slumdog Millionaire, but I also agree it's pr- a pretty weak choice. But I think Gladiator is deserving. Otherwise, I think Belinda's on the money with Green Book and The Artist. I will add to that list uh, Crash, which is like Green Book, but louder. <laughs> <laughs> Constantly louder. Uh, that movie has aged uh, like a pile of shit left in the warm sun. Um, I also, I'll con- maybe controversially, say Braveheart, a movie that is impressively staged, but full of lots of very deliberate choices uh, that feel like they're there to satisfy Mel Gibson's political aims as opposed to um, add that story. It's it's probably the most homophobic best picture winner of all time. So I'll put Braveheart in there. Chris, what about you? You know, this is tough because I don't know. Everyone's got their, their different opinion. I think I I would, if I had to pick, you know, crash is a big one. Uh, I really loathe Forrest Gump. I know that's a controversial thing. I just don't, like that movie at all uh but rather than being all negative i'm going to do one positive thing here and i'm going to defend one movie that people always hold up as a bad example and it's shakespeare in love look everyone was really upset when this won best picture and i know it has uh you know the stain of being related to the you know the weinsteins and and their the way they manipulated the oscar voters and stuff like that and everyone was like how could this beat saving private ryan Look, I'm a huge Spielberg fan. I love Saving Private Ryan. I think Saving Private Ryan is actually a better movie than this. But 
Shakespeare in Love is a good movie. And I always feel a little bad when people are like, that movie's terrible. It's not a bad movie. It's a very funny, charming, romantic movie. And if you like, you know, Shakespeare and stuff like that, uh, there's nothing to dislike about this film. So I've, I've always been a little put off by the overwhelming loathing that Shakespeare in Love seems to inspire in people. So that's my one good deed of the day, defending Shakespeare in Love. It's a good deed, well Chris, because it rules. Chris, Shakespeare in Love really rules. I Thank mean, you. St. Fred Ryan's excellent. I, I think they're both I think they're both great movies, Chris. And I, I, yeah. I think that uh, the story, famously, as you mentioned, that Harvey Weinstein aggressively using a lot of money advertised for that win, and a lot of people think that's why he got it. But history should remember the movie itself, which is a really fantastic rom-com. Maybe one of the best rom-coms ever made. It's great. It's funny. It's romantic. It's it's a good movie. I've just never understood the, the vitriol it inspires. So, yeah. Well, you guys have now inspired me to bump that near or, or at the top of my queue because I've never seen it. Uh, I think probably in, in large part because of the that negative reaction that you're talking about. So to hear you guys speak so uh, highly of it makes me want to check it out immediately. So hopefully some of our listeners will do the same. Um, I think for me, like I'm on record as pretty much despising Chicago, which I, I think is also somewhat of a controversial opinion. <laughs> um, this is an interesting question because Belinda writes, what movie was the worst choice for best picture? And to me, I'm reading that as like, what is the worst movie that won best picture? But you could also read it as what is the worst option what what is the the worst beat in in oscars history and that that sort of pits the nominees against each other and that's where i think like um you know something like driving miss daisy w- would be a good answer uh or um i don't know american beauty maybe but like I mean, and, and there the are ult- several oh go ahead i mean the ultimate is probably dances with wolves beating goodfellas and uh i don't want but i don't want to call dances with wolves a bad movie because it's not but that movie winning over Goodfellas is a, a bit of a travesty. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I like this question. Um, Can I ask a, a uh, follow-up to this? Yes. Asking about the, the worst pick of the bunch, you know, like what could be the worst, you know, film chosen from that year's lineup. I'm looking at the Oscar nominees for the uh, 49th Annual Academy Awards, which aired in 1977. And I feel like there's one film here that doesn't stand up, but, Correct me if I'm wrong. Is this the strongest best picture lineup of all time? Uh, and which one do you think would <laughs> be your choice? Is the worst pick? Uh, Rocky, All the President's Men, Bound for Glory, Network, and Taxi Driver. I mean, Rocky won. I feel like Bound for Glory is maybe the one forgotten one. But I'm trying to think of another year where there really I've never seen Bound for Glory, so that's what I would pick. <laughs> yeah, I haven't either. Um, it's a Hal Ashby film, so it can't be bad. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that is a that is like historically. I mean, I think a, a, you could make the case that that is the greatest uh, Oscar year in terms of the best picture category for sure. Um, I, I wouldn't pick Rocky in that category as the winner, though. I mean, I, I love Rocky, but uh, I don't know. I think there was something in the air at that moment. Chris, I, I assume you would pick the Scorsese movie, right? What were the options again? Sorry, uh, Rocky, All the President's Men, Bound for Glory, Network, and Taxi Driver. Oh, man, it's tough. It would either if I were picking a winner, it would either probably be Taxi Driver or All the Presidents. Man, that, that's a really tough one. Yeah, four of the five nominees are like remain completely essential yeah. decades <laughs> later, which you can't say for most years. That's true. Three out of the five ish Best Picture nominees fade. Like once the year is out and the hype's gone, they they kind of fade in the background. Whereas 
1977. Four of those five are ones we actively still talk about and revere today. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's go to our, our final question here. Uh, hello, Slash Film team for horror lovers, specifically Chris. I would love to hear, uh, uh, oh, but I'd love to hear from all of you. What was the first horror film that truly terrified you and made you fall in love with the genre? And that is uh, part one of a two-part question from Pablo from Fort Wayne, Indiana. So um, let, let's pause here and answer that uh, Let's start with Chris, since you were specifically called out here. The first horror film that truly terrified you and made you fall in love with the genre. Man, I don't know what the first horror movie that truly terrified me was. Probably Pet Cemetery because I saw that, the 1981, one. I saw that way too young and it just, it traumatized me because I had never really thought, I was a kid, I had never really thought about death before. And watching a movie about death was like, uh-oh, this is upsetting. But I, the movies that made me fall in love with horror are the the classic universal monster movies uh my grandfather was like a big movie buff and uh he introduced me to those you know class you know dracula and frankenstein and bride of frankenstein and those were the movies that really made me fall in love with the genre they didn't scare me but i was just like uh entranced with them and and also uh even though it's not a horror movie abbott and costello meet frankenstein (laughs) was a big deal when i was a kid because it was all the monsters together in one movie. And I was like, this is the best thing I've ever seen in my life. So, <laughs> so that's, it's like sort of a two part answer there. Um, I, before we go to you, Jacob, I, since I'm not really like the big horror guy, my answer is going to be uh, the VHS covers of Candyman and Hellraiser. <laughs> I think just like walking through blockbuster and seeing those on the shelves, um, such striking images. I think those affected me more than any horror film that I saw. Uh, probably up until like my teenage years or something. And at that point, it it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like the spirit, like I'm honoring the spirit of this question um, by answering something that I saw when I was a teenager. This sort of feels like, you know, when you're a kid, like uh, the, the primordial ooze of you as a human being, when you know, (laughs) you're, you're still at your most uh, susceptible kind of thing. Like what, what movies had this big impact on you? So I I don't really have a great, great answer there, but um, man, those images, I, I, they still stick in my head. Um, but Jacob, I know you're obviously a big horror guy as well. So what do you have for this category? I'm going to cheat slightly because I did not grow up in a horror household. There were never talk of horror movies in rotation. So I don't remember a movie that lit the fire under me. It was a TV show. It was Nickelodeon's Are You Afraid of the Dark? And because I didn't have the you know hardened horror background of any kind that show terrified me uh, I, I still vividly remember the maybe the first episode of the show possibly uh where there's a evil clown hunting a kid through his house uh in a fun house and it is uh it stuck with me for years and years and that for me was foundational i and maybe even like you know a combination of that and goosebumps books it was kid-friendly horror that terrified me and terrified me at the right age and there was never like a, a single time where I accidentally watched an adult horror movie. Whoops. Now I'm scared. It was always like <laughs> stuff intended for me that worked for me. And that's why I'm always rooting for, you know, actual scary stuff. That's also PG because that's how I enter all this. Cool. Are you afraid of the dark was a big one for me too. And, and it's not like a movie or anything, but the, the scary stories to tell in the dark books were huge for me too, with all their, their terrifying drippy drawings, which were just, horrifying when i was a kid yeah. <laughs> uh, all right so pablo also wanted to uh to ask ht something but also open the floor up to the rest of us which is uh, what was the first animated movie that you loved that helped cement your love for that uh genre i guess that would be 
I don't know, animation is not really a genre, it's more of a medium, right? But um, but I think that the point stands. So uh, first animated movie that, that you really like fell in love with, I think for me, it was probably, you know, I, I was born in 1985. So like, uh, I, I'm guessing I watched, um, you know, Disney movies that were pre the Disney Renaissance period, because Little Mermaid came out in 89. And I'm sure I saw that, you know, in theaters when I was very young. But even before that, I'm guessing my, you know, I remember having like the big uh, Disney VHS clamshells in my house um, growing up. So I know that I I sort of grew up on a a diet of uh, Disney animated movies. My guess is that it would be um, the Robin Hood animated film from the 70s, which I still love. And I, I know that that movie has like a... Uh, you know, a very vocal uh, group of supporters, but it, I feel like is is generally overlooked a lot. Um, you know, on on big lists of the greatest Disney animated movies, but that one was the one where you know, as a as a an adventurous young boy, um, that one really like struck a chord with me at the right age, and and uh, I, I still love that movie. So um, that would be my answer, uh, Jacob. Any thoughts here? Yeah, I also have you know very fond memories of the Disney clamshell. <laughs> VHS releases. I'm a smidge younger than you, but we grew up in the same era where Disney was on the present. Like, I can't remember the first Disney movie I watched, uh, but I can tell you that the one that I remember seeing in theaters when I was four years old and walking away going, that's my favorite movie ever, uh, was Disney's Aladdin, which I know is a movie that has its has elements that maybe haven't aged well, but I still think that overall that movie was really wonderful, is really wonderful, mm-hmm. and it's the one that the first Disney movie that wasn't already there for me, it was the one that was new. It was the first one where I was aware, oh, this is a new Disney movie. And that, for me, really put me on a path to understanding that Disney was not just a thing that was always around. There was new stuff coming out. It made me more aware of what it meant to enjoy animated stuff as a game. Chris, what about you? You know, I don't really have a good answer to this. I don't, I don't dislike animated films, but I'm not like... I don't know. I'm like neutral on the genre. I like some animated films when I watch them, and I but I I was never. I don't think I was ever at a point where I was like, ah, animated films. I mean, <laughs> I guess like uh, like Little Mermaid and Aladdin would be the big ones, and also like um, an American Tale with Fievel was a big deal when I was a kid. I remember, Hell and yeah. also Fievel Goes West. <laughs> but but yeah, I don't really have a great answer for this. I'm sorry to say. I mean, I like animated movies i watch new animated movies when they come out but i don't really have one that I can pinpoint where i was like ah this is the genre for me because it was never really a big genre for me well any podcast that uh, includes a shout out to five will goes west is a great one in my book so i, I feel like we've uh, we've served our purpose here today so uh I have, hopefully... I have a, you can ask a five question yes sorry i i I wonder if I'm alone in this. Did, did you guys endlessly rewatch Five Will Goes West, but not rewatch the original? Because the original is a deeply sad, traumatizing movie, and the sequel is not. Yes, 100%. Yes. <laughs> I only owned the sequel on VHS for some reason. I didn't have the first one. So that was the, was the one I, I rewatched the most. I don't know why I didn't have the original. Man, yeah, I remember like wanting a pop gun so bad because Five Will had a pop gun in Five Will Goes West, and it was like the coolest thing when I was, I don't know nine years old or something i just thought that was that was so uh i mean it's it's so like quaint now and like you know if i had a kid now letting them run around outside with a toy gun considering like how (laughs) this country uh treats stuff like that um i don't think i would do it but you know the 80s were a different time so uh 
yeah, on that note, let's wrap, let's wrap things up. Um, you can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all of the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at SlashFilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow.